News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you by any chance been having strange dreams lately? Turns out it is not unusual at this time of year. And yes, it is because of the holiday season, believe it or not. So why? What is going on in our brains? Well, Dr. Dean Burnett is going to tell us. Dr. Burnett is a neuroscientist and author of Emotional Ignorance and joins us now. Dr. Burnett, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. Well, you know what? I'm fascinated to talk about this because I'm sure some people must think it's just them having these strange dreams. But what happens to our brains at this time of year? Well, yeah, it's a very good point. Like, I think it's people expect uh, you know, the holiday season to be full of laughter and joyfulness and happy thoughts, but um, it, it's not. It's you know, The older you get, especially, the more pressure and more stress it is. Lots of expectation, lots of financial demands, there's lots of change to routine. Um, you know, Northern Hemisphere, the weather's not much better, so there's a lot of stress to factor in as well. And when we sleep, uh, when our dreams are basically our, way, our brain's way of processing our more recent memories and thoughts and you know, um, underlying uh, concerns and try and blend them into what's already in our brains and things like that. So they keep bringing them up. So even though you might not be consciously aware of the stress you're experiencing, when you're dreaming, it's your brain that's trying to factor that in. So you know, your, dream, your dreams can take on a more stressful, a more sort of anxious edge. So yeah, there's a lot to, a lot to process when it comes to the holiday season for your, your basic brain. Okay, so would you say that um, the dreams perhaps might become more vivid? Yeah, they can do. Um, because basically one of the theories is that dreams are always, like I said, our brain's way of processing new memories and right. connect them to existing memories to make them sort of blend into our existing mind and mental state. Um, but to do that, it sort of starts to connect all the different parts to existing parts to make them more, you know, more and more integrated. But emotions are a huge part of memory, like the most emotionally vivid memories are the ones which um, you know, our brains prioritize the most because that's the way we've evolved. So if you have a lot of uh, you know, stress building up, that will manifest more in your existing memories. So that'll pop up more in your dreams. So your dreams may be more, suddenly more intense, suddenly more you know, evocative, and you might sort of wake up a bit more going, oh, what was that about? Because you know, you've got all these emotions to churn through, and uh, your brain's trying to do it while you're asleep, but sometimes it gets carried away and wakes you up, which is counterproductive. So uh, yeah, it can be a bit of a confusing time for the brain. Right. Okay. So, are there common themes to these heightened dreams that we have at this time of year? Well, people say there is. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of reports of um, people sort of dreaming of being lost at sea. Um, you know, sort of uh, falling off things like the sort of free fall. Um, teeth falling out is a very common uh, manifestation of this. And one thing, one theory as to why this happened is that when you have a stressful experience, so you build up a lot of stress in your brain. Your brain, your, your dreaming brain will try to sort of dilute that. So, okay, this is stress. Where does stress normally go? And it tries to connect it to existing memories to sort of spread the load. So, like, one memory doesn't have too much emotional impact uh, when you recall it. So, it'll connect it to existing stressful things. And you know, there are a lot of things which are common causes of stress for people. Like, the idea of you know, being adrift, lost at sea is an existing uh, concern. Like, people brush their teeth all the time because they want to, you know, to it is, uh, is, is an ongoing fear. So that'll be overrepresented in your memory. So your brain's taking new stress and connecting it to old stress, and that sort of shows up in your dreams. Hmm. Try and dilute it and make it more, of the, um, more integrated into the overall system you've got. Well, Dr. Burnett here, I thought the holiday season was all about warmth and love and getting together with loved ones, <laughs> and now I'm hearing about how stressful it all is. 
Uh, yeah, well, it's both. Obviously, there's not um, uh, there's not uh, no any sort of rule saying you can't be both. But um, like I say, like you, you, you know, like what you just said, like you know, I thought it was all about love and rejoicing and celebration, and you're expecting that now. So you know, when you're older, you've realised it's you know, part of your job to make that happen, and that's a lot of pressure for a lot of people, you know, especially right. if, you know in these times when. Everything's expensive, and you have to coordinate. It's a lot of work to make these things happen. I think we grow up as children when your parents do it all. You think it just just occurs overnight, like something <laughs> comes so and the table for you, which he doesn't. He doesn't. That's <laughs> not his job anyway. So, but what what about the other end of that though? Yes, we have this expectation of warmth and love and togetherness. But what about the people who don't have that? How can loneliness impact this? Yeah, that's obviously another way it can manifest as a stressful thing because you know. Ironically, even though if you've got no one you need to celebrate with, the pressure's technically off in terms of obligations and um, you know, expectations on you. But that has a stressful impact in, like I say, the opposite end because you know, we are you know, we grow up to believe and assume and expect that the holiday season is full of like warmth and celebration, companionship. And when you don't have that, you know, when everyone else does, your you know your brain instinctively can't help but think, well, there's something wrong with me. I have failed. I have done something or I am not doing something which would mean I have a normal life like everyone else does. I know we can completely, you know, not nobody's fault. It can be nothing but, um, you know, just bad luck, but it still feels that way because, you know, a lot of our brains, a lot of our brains way of processing where we are and who we are as a person involves comparing to other people. And if other people have this experience and expect it and you don't, that'll cause stress in and of itself. So it's a whole other source of, um, negative emotion that can, can be tapped at this time of year despite the best efforts. So if you're having heightened dreams then at this time of year, does that tell us that we might be feeling some stress and we should be listening to our bodies? Yeah, pretty much. That's a really good um, way of interpreting that. So if you are, you know, you feel like, even if you, even if you think, you can you sort of convince yourself that this is great and I'm a lovely time, I love Christmas, and your brain's going, you know, thinking dream will be lost at sea or falling off cliffs and stuff, then... That's, that suggests you are sort of suppressing something which um, is not really healthy in the long term. I guess you could argue that you know, Christmas period is relatively short in terms of the, the whole year, but it's still something to be aware of. So if you are experiencing these you know, negative dreams constantly, then there's something which you're making yourself do or expecting or think you have to do, which perhaps you should reevaluate. You know, think, do I have to host everyone you know, every year and do all the work? And can I... Can I ask for help? Can I like lower expectations? Can we say this year we're just going to do a simpler thing? These things might be more beneficial. And you still have just go to Christmas without the um, added pressure. Yeah, those are good questions we should ask ourselves. Dr. Burnett, thank you for your time. <laughs> no problem at all. Thanks for that. That's Dr. Dean Burnett. Dr. Burnett is a neuroscientist and the author of Emotional Ignorance, which at this time of year, I can understand why people are having very vivid, unusual dreams. We've all got those long to-do lists. And even if you don't have a long to-do list, maybe it's the lack of that that is also upsetting to people. Loneliness can be an issue at this time of year. So understandable, right? That that's impacting how we sleep for sure. Find a way in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in, find out what's going on with our Scott Shunts this morning. What, what do you have going on? Have you ever made Beef Wellington? Uh, okay, I was going to say, I'm glad you asked about this, Simi. Really? I have never, I am, because I have never made Beef, beef Wellington. Surprising fact about Scott, I don't really cook. Huh. 
How did you make it this far onto this show? <laughs> well, I I like to eat the things that people right, cook, so right. that's that's how we find balance, Simmy. But one of the people in my family who does love to cook a lot is my sister, and she often makes beef Wellington <gasps> at Christmas and has a fantastic recipe. And I've already texted her saying I would so like good. to get your recipe. Yeah, so my sister and her husband are hosting Christmas for us this year. Uh, they're like a wonderful. They have this great place out in Langley dual income, no kids. They're fantastic. So they love to host. They're great, like aunt and uncle, and they spend the entire day cooking and preparing their house. This sounds ideal. Yeah, it's really, really great. Like Christmas tree up in the in November, two dogs. It's like, a, and they have like a nice place. Everybody it's like a goes there. Christmas movie. It really is. <laughs> and my sister, she would, that would be like such a great compliment to her. And they always go all out on the meal. So it, it's good. I would good. love her yeah. Beef Wellington recipe. Thank you so much. I look forward to checking it out. Fantastic. Yeah. So I wanted to talk this morning, Simi, because as you mentioned, so many people are like, this is the last day or tomorrow is their last day. Or a lot of people are in fact already off for Christmas. And one of the interesting little things that I've kind of enjoyed over the last week is emailing people and getting the fun Christmas out of office email responses. Right. Like I emailed someone yesterday and I got back, ho, ho, hold your emails until I'm back in the new year. Right. And I was like, oh, that's It doesn't surprise me at all that you have a chuckle over these. Yeah. uh, I, I think that's cute, but are there people out there who don't like this? Well, here's the thing. And, etiquette expert, which I say in air quotes, has said, oh, this is really bad and you should be careful because I know why. Because your your company might not like it. They might feel that it misrep, whatever you're putting in your out of office might misrepresent the company or you're misrepresenting yourself as not being professional enough. Blah, blah, blah. No fun. Who wants the calm down, first of all, calm down. (laughs) I can I can see that perhaps it depends on the job job that you are doing. For instance, if you work at a funeral home, you would not put that on your, right? So obviously there is some discretion involved here if it is appropriate, but I would say for a lot of office workers, this is perfectly fine. I totally agree, but they're saying you should, I mean, this this, uh, etiquette expert says you should just keep it short and simple. They say that you should avoid things like, uh, you know, it should have, um, you're away. Uh, when you're back and who to contact if it's urgent. You don't need to put things like, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm doing, happy holidays, seasons, greetings. They're saying leave all of that stuff out. I completely agree with you. The only thing I agree with on that list is that you don't need to tell anybody where you're going. You just need to tell people you're unreachable for that time. That's it. Yeah. And And then, you know, fine, do whatever you want. Like, have some fun with it. it, See, that's the part that I agree with is have some fun with it because this is an opportunity to, like, uh, maybe they're clients. It's an opportunity to, like, in yourself to them and show, oh yeah, this is why I work with Scott or Simi because they're fun and like I remember them and stuff. So Simi, I went through and compiled a list of what I think are some of the best out of office Christmas oh replies. Okay. Like I really like the ho ho happy holidays. That one was very good. Uh, one here says I'm currently out of office for the holidays, which means I'm either I'm busy trying not to roll my eyes at this year's new batch of corny holiday movies, attempting to explain my career to my relatives for the eight hundredth time or getting buzzed on too many mugs of eggnog. Can you blame me? Okay, well, that's too much information. Like, they could have put just one. The middle one would have been funny. 
Okay. Maybe it. maybe it's a bit long, but that's I like bit, that I it's like funny. That's a, that's a bit long. It's funny, but I do feel like that's too much. Okay. Uh, hey, I'm off for the week. Please enjoy this animated gif of a cat doing X thing, tearing down a Christmas tree in, in my absence. Sure. I, I love uh, that. I'll I think that's fun. Yeah, totally. I won't be quite as far as the North Pole, but I will still be dis- completely disconnected from my inbox. So if you require immediate assistance, please send your email to so-and-so. I like that one. Right? That's fine. That's good. They say, uh, if your matter is urgent, it's likely your note will be temporarily swallowed in a sea of unread emails to be responded after I return to reality. Sure. Okay. I'll go with that. Vacations are for checking emails, aren't for checking emails, so I won't be doing that. I'll reply to your note as soon as I return to the office. Mm, I don't know. That's not really holiday related. That just seems snarky. What about this one? Hey, I'm out of the office and probably drunk. Okay, that's funny. <laughs> I probably shouldn't laugh. That might that I could see might be one that your company would be like, please don't tell people you're drinking. Like, I don't know. I I, I think it's funny though. I totally I love it. Hey, it's Christmas. What are you doing emailing me? It just says that's that. Good. That's it. There's nothing else, right? <laughs> I'm extremely busy watching Home Alone, Die Hard, and the 1994 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Christmas special. And I'll repeat this on repeat until the new year. I might stop for food and toilet breaks, but I also might not. Regardless of my general that was too much. and hygiene. Just the first line. The I'll first line was fine. Office. Yeah, the first line was fine on that Yeah, I, I think these are really, really fun. And my favorite one, Simi, is somebody who created an entire quiz about Die Hard and put that in the out-of-office email. So and it I was would, like, until it, I'm back, enjoy this quiz about Die Hard. My first thought is, that's funny. My second thought is, do they not have enough to do at work already? Is there, is there like an issue here? But it to me, like to me, it shows that these are the type of people that put thought into all of the things they do, right. even the little things, right? It's like this person has personality. They're going to be okay. really fun to work with. I appreciate that you're thinking like that in terms of coworker. Now, let me ask you to put a different hat on. Let me ask you to put a theoretical manager hat on. Okay. How would you feel about your employees sending those messages out to potential clients? Yeah. And of course, if I'm being realistic, I think it kind of depends on the industry you're in, right? Like if someone in the office is known for that type of personality and that's what has garnered them a lot of great business and that's what works for them, I think it really, you know, that, that works. But I do also see the irresponsibility and just saying, yes. I'm out of office and drunk. Don't try to get a hold that's, of me. Like, if that's an inter-office one, right. fine. If that's only going to people you work with, great. But if it's going to every single person who is contacting you, then I think that sure. might be a bit of an issue. Yeah, like if you're a family law litigator, you probably shouldn't have that as you're uh, out of office. But I do think that, you know, that should be the exception. The rule should be it's Christmas. Let's have fun. Let's have some Baileys Nuance. in our coffee and, you know, let's Baileys. try to enjoy. <laughs> what is right? it with the Baileys at this time of year? Nuance, Scott, it's all about the nuance. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah. it's also about having fun. I'm sorry. Did I kill that for you? <laughs> a, I, a li- I think we found I'm a middle sorry. ground. I we found so. a middle ground. I hope so. I'm trying to be chipper at this time of year. Uh, Scott, thank you. You got it. That is our Scott Johnson. Again, if you want to weigh in, let's hear it from you too on this one. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, so we talk about over budget. This is new, but this is this is a different type of over budget because this isn't the government per se, right? No, this is the Legislative Assembly, and the Legislative Assembly is managed 
quote marks around that, uh, by a committee of MLAs. Uh, each party has a representative on it. They meet periodically. And I was thumbing through the most recent financial reports uh, to that committee. And uh, good heavens, the Legislative Assembly has gone 40% over budget on its capital plan for the current year, uh, $2.3 million in the hole, and the Assembly is seeking a 30% increase in its budget for next year, $29 more million atop the $100 million it already gets, and that's a record. Uh, all of this breezes through a meeting of that Legislative Assembly Management Committee, which leads me to wonder what the hell they're actually managing. The only objections, and there are objections, but they come from BC United, which of course doesn't have a majority on the committee, so it's all gone on. I uh, seriously, Sammy, uh, 2.3 million, 40% over budget on construction, and they want another $30 million for next year. Hmm. That's a lot. Now, is there a reason why they've gone that far well, over budget? You know, the interesting thing about the overrun on the capital plan is that nobody even asked any questions about it. <laughs> they just went, oh, yeah, okay, fine, thanks, move on. Um, near as I can determine, when, when I look out the window of my office, so you know, Simi, I share an office, uh, I share a building and a floor with Keith Baldry of Global and uh, Richard Zussman and so forth and Kylie. Uh, and we look out our windows and we're looking at the back of the legislature buildings and there's a fire escape under construction there. And it has been under construction for months, Simi. And most days nothing is happening there. There's another one around the other side of the back of the building, and they spend a whole lot of time building a new set of front steps at the building. So that's what they're building that's over budget, and they're $2.3 million over budget. So there are problems managing construction at the legislature, and they said, oh, there's supply chain problems and all that. But look... Um, not so long ago, we had big fuss at the legislature, warranted, in my view, at some overspending by the then clerk and so forth, and we got to the bottom of it. The overspending there was in the thousands of dollars. We've now, I would say, Simi, uh, need uh, better accountability for how do you go that far over budget on the construction of two fire escapes. Yeah. As as and and the re and it, it undermines one con one's confidence in what's coming next because the assembly is asking for four million dollars as the down payment they call it a placeholder on a new IT system for the assembly and they admit that is not what it's actually going to cost they want a four million dollar blank check up front and they got it in spite of the objections from BC United. Well, I go, you don't even have a plan, you don't have a bid, you don't have a contractor, you're asking for $4 million and you admit that's probably not enough money. And I go, 
who's going to manage this thing? And why should I have any confidence in your ability to manage it, given what's happened on the construction of two fire escapes? Which, and yeah, course, it's, the, and a set of stairs. Their bad luck is it, it's right in your yeah. line of view every day, yeah. right? So yeah, you no, can, I, there's no telling you otherwise. It's you funny, see it you know, every day. So. Yeah, Keith and I have sort of looked at it a few times and gone, gee, I wonder why it's taking so long to build that. And yesterday in the fine print of the report, I discovered how far over budget it has gone. It's $2.3 million as of the halfway point in the current year because the numbers aren't up to date. So who knows where it's going to end up. And also, I don't trust yeah. any government when it comes to managing IT projects. That is uh, not something that governments yeah. have a history of doing well. Yeah, I mean, Todd Stone, who's the House leader for BC United, get, does protest at the committee meeting. And he was, he ran a software company before he got elected to the legislature. So he knows a little bit about what you just said. And he said, look... IT projects always go over budget. Why should we approve $4 million when we don't even have a contractor yet or a firm bid for the work? And I, and I think he's right. He, he tried to persuade the New Democrats to take that out of the budget request, and the New Democrats wouldn't go for it. And irony of ironies, they were supported in that by BC Conservatives, who were supposedly the Conservatives on this one. So I, I just go, the problem with the scandal five years ago was turning a blind eye to what goes on at the Assembly. The parties hold each other's hands and they don't ask questions, don't ask nearly enough. And we had a speaker who blew the whistle on it. So it, we got to the bottom of it, but I'm looking at, here we go again. Um, Simi, they, <laughs> there's $4 million in this budget for next year to pay what amounts to severance for departing MLAs. So that's how rich the retraining and transition wow. money has got for MLAs. And it's based on the assumption that every election about a third of the MLAs retire or are retired by the voters. And so they take that and they multiply it by how much it costs and they come up with an estimate of $4 million, a payout following the October election. Um, one could go on. There's one item in there that I think is interesting, though I gotta tell you, I have an interest in this one. <laughs> they put $650,000 aside for a proper business plan for how to deal with the armory building. So the armory building is that red brick building that's older than the legislature and it's out behind the legislature and it's where my office is and it's also where the global office is. So uh, we work in there every day and we're always interested in how far along are they in replacing our building because we know we're going to get evicted when they do that. Uh, anyway, $650,000 just to do that We've been told over the years that it would probably take hundreds of millions of dollars to replace that building because it's a heritage building. It's older than the legislature and it's a pile of bricks waiting to fall down. So uh, that one, I'm going $650,000 for a business plan. I don't know whether I'm hmm. sure you guys can keep this thing on budget either, given, as I say, Simi, that they're having trouble managing construction of a fire escape. Two of them, actually. Oh, boy. Now, I expect to hear constant updates now on the progress of this fire escape. Vaughn, just a final note on what we were just talking about there with the legislature and being over budget. Is there any way for that to be looked at? 
Well, it could be, I guess. I mean, the Auditor General has in the past uh, weighed in on this stuff. Uh, his office may not have the resources. Uh, I think the government would be well within its rights to ask the Treasury Board branch of the Ministry of Finance to just give it a once over, uh, maybe offer to lend the legislature some insight into how to manage major construction projects. I just think the amount of public money here, and it's legitimate to ask, why can't they manage this? Um, I, I should also mention, Simi, just for the listener, uh, particularly the listener looking for childcare, that the legislature is about to solve its problem regarding that. Uh, there is $1.7 million in the budget request for next year to construct on the grounds of the legislature a 37-space childcare center. Uh, first call on those spaces will be people who work at the legislature uh, who have childcare needs. Uh, however, they say if there's any spaces left over, they will be available to people in the neighborhood. I haven't priced the cost of childcare construction centers at the moment, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to find out if that's high. Um, $1.7 million, the new childcare center at the legislature won't be open until 2025. And don't be surprised if it ends up costing more than that. Yes, exactly. Another one for us to watch there. Although, you know, I applaud the idea, though. It's about time that they had yeah, a daycare yeah. center there uh, yeah. to help out people who work. Because there's a lot of young people who work in the legislature. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, and they say they don't think the MLAs will have that much uptake on it because uh, the House sits for about 18 weeks a year, some years less than that. And more often than not, MLAs, uh, childcare arrangements where there are children are in their home riding rather than at the legislature and they commute to the legislature. So you're right, Simi, it is mostly for staff that work at the buildings. And uh, I hope there are some spaces left over because I know here in the provincial capital, there is a need for childcare. Okay, I also wanted to ask you about vaccines. Why is the health minister talking about this again? Well, you know, we know we're in a triple-demic, as they say, uh, COVID-19, still around, flu, and RSV. And RSV um, is dangerous. Um, it's more life-threatening and health-threatening than I think we realized. And there is a vaccine for it, and the government is saying get vaccinated. Now, the minister got asked yesterday... A lot of people say they can't afford the vaccination because that one costs money and you can pay up to $300 for the vaccine. So it's wonderful. It's available. State of the art vaccine. All the wonderful things we know about the golden age of vaccines. Adrian Dix gets asked. That's a lot of money for some people. Uh, the vaccine yeah. is tailored for people over the age of 65. So it's only for really for seniors. And Dix, uh, why do we have to pay for it? And he gave... I guess he gave three answers. He says it's a new vaccine. Yes, it is. Uh, he said we are studying the effectiveness of it. Uh, yes, they are. He says there are limited supplies because there's only the one. And so I guess from that I go, well, maybe the government doesn't want to make it free because they're afraid about the take up and they won't be able to keep up with demand. Um, and he says it doesn't cover the entire range of the population that's threatened by RSV because the, the vaccine is not approved for children, even though children can get a really bad case of RSV. So it's rare, I have to say, to come across a medical issue where the New Democrats aren't willing to pay for it, especially True. on the vaccination front. But yeah, um, you can go out, you can shop around, but unless you have a 
good healthcare plan that covers additional costs like vaccinations, uh, like this one, uh, yeah, you can pay up to 300 bucks for an RSV vaccine. Now, when you read stories about what happens to people who get it, uh, it's probably worth it anyway, but it's easy for me to say that because I can afford it. There's a lot of people out there who say they can't. Yeah, that is very pricey. And, and I've been you know, hearing and reading a lot about what's happening in hospitals, not just here, but in other provinces too, and they're filling up. Yeah, and other provinces are struggling with this issue as well. I hadn't realized until I heard Dick's on the subject that one of the concerns is scarcity of supply. I mean, you follow that argument through to the likely conclusion, the government is afraid to make this free. They've made the other vaccines free because they're paying for them up front, and there's lots of the vaccine. Well, that wasn't the case at the beginning of COVID, but now it is. Uh, so on this one, instead of doing what they've done in the past, Simi, which is ration on the basis of risk, so the first group of people that qualify are immunocompromised and all that, uh, instead, what we're getting on this one is uh, you're going to have to pay for it because, uh, well, we just don't see our way clear at the moment. It, it, it isn't strictly a matter of money. It's more a matter of scarcity, and it's a new vaccine and all that. Uh, but uh, no sign yesterday from Adrian Dix that the government's going to change its mind on paying for this vaccine. So get vaccinated and uh, you're going to have to pull some money together to be able to do that. Sure sounds like it. All right. Thank you. Are they looking at it this other way for next year? Uh, they're going to review the effectiveness and uh, revisit the issue next year. Uh, I was told by the uh, wonderful guy at the pharmacy who gave me my vaccine this week. Uh, that uh, this is a, not only a great vaccine, it was good for two years. So he said uh, you probably won't need to get vaccinated next year. So again, you go, okay, 300 bucks for two years of coverage. Uh, I guess there right. probably are other things one could do with one's money. But as I say, I'm not, I'm not lording it over anybody out there who's going to have to pay for it because I recognize, as you say, Simi, that's a lot of money. It is. All right. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, everyone loves a good deal, but are they out there right now, like at this time of year? And are you waiting for one to really finish any shopping that you, you might be doing? It's tight, right? Everybody's budget right now is incredibly tight. I think I've talked this week about doing the $20 and under thing at my house because, yeah, it's a reflection of... We don't want to go all out. We don't, nobody has the money these days to go all out for Christmas anymore. So what does it look like in the retail landscape? Well, we're going to find out. David Ian Gray is here to help us with that because you know what? That's what he does for a living, actually. He's the founder and strategist at the retail advisory firm Dig360. David, thanks for being back with us. Hey. David, tell me, what does it look like out there right now in terms of holiday shopping? It's it's really interesting. Your lead-in talked about um, sort of muted expectations for uh, for spending through uh, through November and December. We're seeing a lot of activity. People are still taking part in uh, uh, very much so in Black Friday, for example, it was way up over anything we've seen since we tracked in 2010. But I don't think the spending is in line with that. I think people are really deal conscious more than ever before. So people were out spending money on Black Friday, but not the amounts of money that they had spent in previous years, perhaps? Yeah, uh, what we're, we're sort of tracking, we, 
People are going to buy things every month, regardless of their household staples. We're tracking specifically those who are engaged with uh, Black Friday promotions in retail. And uh, basically, for years, it was hovering around 50% of Canadians would actually engage in those things. And that surprises some. You know, there's 50% that sit out the hype. But this year, it spiked to 75% of Canadians were, uh, were buying at least a a Black Friday promoted item, and that that's a big jump. And, you know, we tie that back into the economic situation. Okay, so if they bought on Black Friday, are they still buying, or are people now waiting for, you know, Boxing Day? Well, there's a couple of things going on. First of all, when we say Black Friday, I, you know, I think everyone kind of knows now that the deals start in early yes. uh, November. So yeah, it's Black pre-Black Friday, Friday sales, yes. <laughs> And we saw a lot of that bump up to 75%. These are people who in the past would not have been engaging, but they tend to really come in uh, close to the day and through the, that weekend. Uh, we find that about 40% of them are, are mostly buying for themselves. I, we call it self-gifting, um, but they're getting things they want. And then right after Cyber Monday, attention turns to... Um, to holiday gift giving. And so there's a different purpose. So people are still out there and, uh, you know, we're going to see people all through this week uh, doing all their last minute pickups. But we think much like your case, there's little tactics being deployed for the first time instead of impulsively filling up baskets. It's like setting limits, uh, maybe reducing the number of items, uh, trying to get things on sale or not always going for the premium brand, but trading down a little bit. So that's going on right now. And then when we hit uh, Boxing Week, we've got a lot of gift cards to use up and we, we're back into the self-gifting mode again. Are people still using a lot of gift cards or buying gift cards? I, I'd say that even though I know I just bought a couple for some nieces and a nephew the other day. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a trend that's that's really here to stay. And I, anecdotally, we're hearing through our network in the industry that um, pe- you know, people are really hitting peak numbers of gift cards this year, um, not just for in-store, but on, on, online as well. And um, it takes a little burden away, I guess. It's a bit of a cheat. You don't have to try as hard, I suppose. True. It's also so hard to buy for certain age groups, right? So I could understand that with, with gift cards. So is that what drives Boxing Day? Is people going to use what they got on a gift card? Yeah. Um, I mean, Boxing Day was our tradition anyhow uh, in, in the Commonwealth countries, and, and Black Friday is the usurper um, and, and generally was pulling from Boxing Day. Uh, but we're we're still pretty committed, I think, to Boxing Day and Boxing Week. Um, I should have given a shout out, by the way, when I'm citing our data, we have a tremendous partner in uh, the Angus Reid Group who uh, conducted, we had a survey of 1,500 Canadians that went out right after Cyber Monday. So that's what we're basing this on. But um, we, uh, you you know, we're looking at what people are, are expecting to do and they're not... Uh, they're very concerned. 93% of people were saying they were really focused on watching their budget and their expenses this year. And uh, we see an intention anyway. People don't always follow through on their intention, but an intention to really dial back and, and certainly not increase spending over last year by most Canadians. 
And uh, so we think Boxing Week will be another opportunity to buy things for the householder yourself that aren't going to be full price. Uh, the problem for the retail industry is those kind of sales aren't in a exciting time where people are, are buying more and more and more. They're just kind of shifting from what might be bought at a regular price to a right. discounted price. Oh, I'm certainly looking for that too. Some places already have, like the Bay, Boxing Day sales on there. Uh, where do, I have to ask you, what does Facebook Marketplace have to do with all of this? Yeah, that was we didn't track that in the past, but we had that question this time around. And, and uh, uh, you know, a, a sizable minority of people in the 40% range um, were at least exploring Facebook Marketplace for potential, um, you know, seasonal gifts. And that that really caught our attention. And I think that's part of a bigger trend. The resale market is uh, kind of hot right now, both with people watching what they're spending, uh, but there's also a sustainability component to it. And it's becoming kind of cool to uh, make sure you're keeping products at a landfill so right but it's also about keeping it's about finding the deals right i think that's the other thing with facebook marketplaces somebody's looking for that great deal yeah absolutely and um and to have something that's you know sort of gently used um the stigma of that really is going away and uh and it's more than facebook marketplace a lot of the branded sites you know but best buy has a uh, refurbished and resell site and a lot of the brands are, are taking product back and cleaning them up and and reselling. Exactly. Fascinating stuff. Well, David, I'm sure we're going to be checking in with you to find out how Boxing Day goes too. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good day. That's David Ian Gray, founder and strategist at the retail advisory firm Dig360. You know what? Everything he said, everything that Angus Reid has told them with the polling matches up with what my impressions have been of going into the exactly what I have been doing too, right? Checked out the Black Friday sales, looking for the deal, maybe doing some in-person shopping, but definitely looking for something on the lower kind of price end that still have meaning that you can give to people. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you back at the office? I mean, a lot of people are. Not everyone is, and it sounds like employers would really like people to come back to the office. Our Scott Chance is with us now. So, Scott, I don't understand what that means when an employer is trying to incentivize you. What does that mean? Yeah. How do they lure us? What is this? Well, yeah, there's, a, first of all, I was shocked that they're still trying to do this. Like I, I, my general understanding, I don't work from home, so I don't know what that's like, but my general understanding is that that works really well for a lot of people and a lot of people are happy sure. with it. But you know, these companies have invested so much into office culture and into office buildings and stuff. So they want to get their employees back. And they're actually, uh, new research is showing that they're looking for newer, more creative, more expansive, sort of fun, social, culture-building ways to get people back into the office because they think that's going to be the thing that does it. Now, Gensler Architectural Services, they're one of the companies that does this. They get consulted on, like, what can we do to make our office space better or, or more inviting? And uh, Kevin Kadigback, he's one of the strategists there at Gensler, and I got a chance to speak with him, and I asked him about this. Like, are we seeing this? Is that, like, you're getting more requests for, like, cooler, funner offices they're trying to do that we're seeing a lot of shift um i think what uh we're seeing a move towards is something a little bit less uh conservative maybe a little bit less uh corporate uh certainly more informal certainly more social in general what does that actually look like i mean i I think that everybody would agree with um wanting more social workplaces and and like less corporate sort of feeling but like how do you actually do that what does a place like that look like 
Well, I think people are trying to understand or, or perhaps negotiate what hybrid work would be looking like in the future. What does that? Uh, what does the space need to look like to accommodate that type of a work style? Um, so what we're seeing is a lot. When I say things like more casual, more informal, more social. Um, we're seeing a lot more space being dedicated to group activities. So in a previous world, you might see a lot of offices and desks. In a post-pandemic world, we're seeing a lot more social spaces. So big, big work cafes where everyone can gather, um, lounges, uh, that sort of thing. We also see a lot more um, effort behind creating spaces that um, lean into wellness and lean into inclusion, perhaps. So a lot more natural daylight, a lot more biophilia, so natural materials, plants, that sort of thing. Okay, well, that sounds really cool. How, like, how are employees responding to this type of thing? Well, so that's a, that's also a good question. I think part of this effort is obviously to get uh, people to come back into the office, but I think it's it's more than space. So space is a big part of it, um, but there needs to be a bit of change management around it. And there needs to be some leadership-led change as well. In general, um, offices uh, or employees are, are really seeing some of these things as a lot of benefits um, to them. So, you know, if you are coming to the office to, to learn something or to be more social or to, you know, even just you know, gather with your team. The question is, do you actually have those space to do that? And I think in a pre-pandemic world, there wasn't a ton of them. Um, so that's what we're really trying to create. Like we want people to be more social, to engage with each other and create spaces for them to do that in. You mentioned hybrid working. I know a lot of people like COVID kind of changed the game, right? A lot of people are work from home or work from home a couple of days a week, this shared space thing. Is that just like the future of office work in general? Personally, I think hybrid work is not going anywhere. And so this idea of flexibility, um, some of your days in the office, some of your days remotely from some other place from home. Um, and I think that that's the future, the future of work. Um, but when I, when I think about what the desired effect is to get people to come in more often, I think it really does matter that you have, you know, some of your leadership trying to push for this change as well. Um, so it can't just be just the space can only go so far. I think um, you want to pair it with a, a bunch of other things. One of the biggest challenges that I hear for returning to office is, you know, my technology at home is better. So for an organization, the obvious thing to do is, you know, improve your technology uh, to get people to come into the office a little bit more. I, I feel that. I think that a lot of people can probably uh, sort of relate to that to that idea. And now I, one of the other things I sort of hear, it's like, Offices don't want to necessarily improve uh, a workspace or put a ton of money into, you know, making these very cool sort of creative, flowy environments just to have employees leave or maybe it affects um, productivity. Can you speak to that at all? Do offices that ha have this kind of focus, do they produce like better, better output, uh, employee retention, that type of thing? Well, I think the critical piece there is to not, you're not leaning completely into a social space. And, and what I mean by that is offices in the future will be very balanced in how they accommodate how you want to work. So while we talk about social, while we talk about sort of, you know, the, the, so pre, the subtext is that it's like noisier spaces, more exciting spaces, more dynamic movement happening in those spaces. You don't want to deprioritize focus spaces. So spaces with a closed door or a workstation, that sort of thing. So I think when you're providing for both of those types of work modes, you get the benefit from a social space, but you're also not taking away from the opportunity for people to actually be productive when they come into the office. So it's, it's 
sort of a critical thought you need to provide for how people want to work. And it's more than just sort of hanging out and socializing. And I think we all have sort of seen the, um, you know, like the crazy offices, like at tech buildings and stuff where it's like, oh, there's a bar and there's like a bound, an adult sized bouncy castle or a ping pong table yeah. or what, whatever. What's too far in, in some of this, these respects? Well, I think the, the okay, too far, there's, there's maybe a few things in the past that have gone a little bit too far, but I think just really understanding what, why are you building this space? Um, what is the purpose of the actual thing that you're building? Because I think throwing a bounty castle in is, it could be a bit much, but maybe there's a very specific reason. But we've seen things like slides in offices pre-pandemic. I think what we are seeing a move towards is um, sort of hyper-convenient environment. So forget about the, the, the wild amenity. But when my people come into the office, is everything really easily accessible? So we're seeing things like concierge services. We're seeing things like developers build a concierge into their building um, to help just negotiate the space a little bit easier. We're seeing package drop-offs being delivered or, or um, we've talked about uh, sort of change rooms almost built into space. So if you get a package delivered to your office, you can try it on and immediately deliver it back if you don't like it. So there are a few things that, you know, maybe they're not as crazy as a bouncy castle, but certainly they're a different way of thinking. Like, how can we make this space super convenient, but also allow employees to come to the office to do work and find some like, live, work, uh, live work balance? So some of the things they need to do in their daily life, can they accomplish that in the office as well? That's Kevin Kadigbach. He is a strategist at Gensler Architectural Services, talking about the office of the future. Concierges in the I office, Simi. love the idea of package drop-off at work, because that's such a huge issue for people everywhere. And a space for you to try it on and return it. I don't know about that, but okay, thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. What do you consider middle class? Turns out most Canadians have a pretty broad interpretation of that. I can understand that. I mean, most people, most of us, think we are middle class, but it's hard to define what it actually means. Not only that, it does seem as though we are not as optimistic as we once were about the future of the middle class, too. So to talk more all about this, about how we're feeling, we're joined now by Dan Arnold, the Chief Strategy Officer of Polera, which has been asking these questions. Uh, Dan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Now, what did you ask Canadians about? Yeah, so this is this is a poll that Polaris has been doing for almost ten years now. Uh, really to try to figure out what middle class means, and you know, like you said, there's no real concrete definition. There's not a Statistics Canada definition that says if you make between this and this, you're middle class. So we tried tried to figure out what is that middle class uh, state of mind, what is that middle class definition that people assign to it. And I mean, this wave we found out that about three in four Canadians, seventy eight percent, consider themselves middle class. That hasn't changed too much in recent years. What has changed, though, is that the optimism of the middle class has really just drained out of it uh, in this post-COVID uh, era that we find ourselves in. So would you say middle class ends up being a pretty wide range, a wide group of people? Yeah, I mean, this is. I think this is why politicians talk about the middle class all the time, because yeah. uh, they feel like they're talking to everybody, pretty much. You've got uh, almost 8 in 10 people who consider themselves middle class. Uh, that's true. Uh, people at the top end of the income spectrum, if you make over $150,000 a year, 9 in 10 people still consider themselves middle class, even though by any definition, they're doing quite, quite well. Uh, but even people who make 
20, 30, 40,000 a year, the majority of them still consider themselves middle class as well, too. So uh, it's definitely a group that uh, spans the spectrum. And as a result of that, I think, um, you know, it, it's why politicians like to talk to the middle class because they kind of feel like they're talking to everyone. OK, so when you have that kind of spectrum of income levels and backgrounds and all of that, and yet we consider it middle class, is the optimism, the lack of optimism, did that kind of cut across all of that? Yeah, so I, this is uh, really the big striking findings from this this survey here. We've been asking every wave, you know, how do you feel about the future of Canada's middle class? And usually about half of people have been optimistic. It's been between 45% and 53% every single time. This time that fell to just 30% of people who say they're optimistic about the future of the middle class. Uh, when we ask people... We asked parents, do you think your kids can grow up to be middle class through hard work? It used to be about eight in 10 parents said, yeah, my kids can be middle class if they work hard. Now it's down to just half of parents. So huge drop in terms of that level of middle class optimism out there. I think that's really just because of the environment that we're in right now of high interest rates and unaffordable housing and expensive gas and expensive grocery uh, fill ups at the uh, super uh, the grocery store. So I think, uh, you know, this environment we find ourselves in has really just made it difficult for middle class people of all parts of the uh, income spectrum. OK, which is another reason why politicians are talking about it so much. Right. Because if you're saying that no matter what income level you're at in the middle class umbrella, you're still feeling this way. That's a lot of people, Dan. Yeah. And I mean, we've done some other polling at Polera. We have a survey we do regularly called the Rage Index, which is asking people how angry you are about different things. And we've seen steadily over the last year or two, just the level of anger and frustration in Canadians going up. And it really is being driven by this uh, economic situation. It's kind of the post-COVID funk that the country finds itself in where everything's just more expensive and you can't afford a house. And, you know, ultimately this is creating a lot of frustration out there. And, you know, I think that's why a lot of politicians are trying to capitalize on that and, uh, and try to speak to people and offer them a little bit of hope uh, or at least solutions for what's going on. So when you ask people about that, first of all, great name, Rage Index, love it. Um, what what would you say is the top of the list when it comes to frustration for people? Yeah, and it's really um, more than anything at this point, I'd say the two things that stand out would be the cost of food at the grocery store, because uh, that's something you experience every week, right? You're going to the store and then bacon's more expensive than it was the week before and milk's more expensive than it was. And it's something that you're just constantly exposed to. It impacts everybody because everybody's got to eat, right? So that's usually at the top of the list in terms of economic frustrations people are feeling. Uh, but then housing is something, especially for young people, uh, where they are just feeling like they can't have the same opportunity that their parents had. They're not going to have the same uh, opportunity the previous generation had to own that house in the suburbs um, because it is so unattainable for them. And then if you got a house um, and you have to renew your mortgage right now with interest rates the way they are, uh, suddenly you're a couple hundred dollars short on your monthly um checkbook than you yeah. were uh, previously. So I think, uh, you know, the housing uh, market being unattainable for many people, and then those who are in the market having to pay more on mortgage renewals uh, due to interest rates are really having a big impact on Canadians as well, too. Okay. Have you seen trends like this before or is this new? I mean, there's been times in the past when people have felt 
um, like the economy is not going great. You think back to like, you know, 2008, 2009 wasn't a great economic time. Um, but I do think the difference now is that it's hitting people a bit more directly just because this is stuff um, that, again, people are exposed to all the time and impacts them personally when it comes to inflation, cost of living. Um, whereas when you get times when the job market's a bit softer, yeah, obviously, if you lose your job, that is catastrophic for you. But mm -hmm. even when times are tough, you know, unemployment rates go up to what, 10, 15%. It's not impacting everybody. Whereas, you know, the pressures that we're facing right now are things that pretty much everybody is facing. And I think that creates a lot of that frustration and that decline in middle class optimism that we're seeing right now. That's going to make next year so interesting for your job, isn't it? Right? To see how this evolves in 2024. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, I think right now this, uh, you know, this high level of anger, this low level of optimism is being driven really by the economic situation. So if you got to a point where, you know, interest rates were cut, where inflation went down a little bit, you know, people might start feeling a bit better about the economy. And, you know, we'd have to see if that translates to growing middle class optimism uh, or not at that stage. All right, we'll see. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Sure. No problem. Anytime. Dan Arnold, Chief Strategy Officer of Polera. Listen, those are some very interesting findings. Not surprising, really. One, that most Canadians consider themselves to be middle class, but we don't have an actual definition on what that means. I think if you asked just about anybody, they would tell you they're middle class, right? Uh, and also, though, that no matter where you fit into that umbrella of middle class, you are struggling or not at least not feeling optimistic about the future. And I don't blame you with everything that's going on out there these days, right? There's, it's hard to find the optimism, even if you are a person who considers himself to be positive and glass half full. It is tough out there. And let's hear your thoughts on that too. Simi at cknw.com. Uh, all the challenges out there for 2024, you're looking ahead to the year economically for you, your family, or just you, how are you feeling about that? Do you think it's going to be a good year or do you think, no, I'm definitely going to have some challenges next year financially? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Always helps to know what people are thinking. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is an international murder mystery with Canadian connections. Two people killed on Dominica Island. What happened and why is this getting so much attention? Well, Patrick White is a national correspondent for the Globe and Mail and has been covering this story and joins us now to talk about it. Patrick, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, you've written quite, quite the piece on this. What is so, do you think, compelling about this? Why is this generating so much attention? Well, I think it's internationally and especially in Canada you have two people who were especially in Quebec quite well known they uh, uh, Daniel uh, Langlois sold his uh, 3d animation company which was responsible I mean this wasn't just any 3d animation company they were responsible for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park they were responsible for the ship in Titanic in, in the movies and uh, they cast around the world in 1997 after they had this money in their pocket looking for their ideal place of paradise. And they found it in Dominica. And I think what is compelling is you had these two people who had, who had really found their paradise and were really supporting the local economy in so many different ways. And then um, tragedy struck. It's just, uh, it's just there's, there's something just in the basics of that, the contours of that story that are hard to look away from. Okay, let's talk about what happened. What do we know about this case so far? Well, it's, uh, 
I mean, what happened on December 1st is a group of workers who were actually walking to a, a resort called Coolibri Ridge, which is was built and owned by Daniel Langlois, one of the victims. They were walking to work on a kind of overgrown jungle road, and they spotted a burned-out uh, Nissan kind of that was just off the road, kind of down a cliff a little ways. Uh, they contacted the police, and the police found the um, charred remains of two people. It took a few days because of the condition of the remains, but they, they determined it was uh, Daniel Langlois and Dominique Marchand, the two people who I mentioned earlier who had built this resort, who had found their paradise. And then the search was on for the police to find uh, who had done it. They realized from the scene, from certain telltale signs, that whoever had pushed this car over, over a kind of ledge had been severely burned. And after talking to local, the local community, the community here called Soufriere is only 1,500 people. So Daniel and Dominique were very well known. And so were just as well known was the animosity between Daniel and a neighbor by the name of Jonathan Lair, who uh, shared a road with Daniel and lots of uh, tourists going to Daniel's resort and lots of, of transport trucks going to the resort traveled through Jonathan Lair's property. He was really irritated by this, and it was no secret to anybody in the community that he wanted that traffic to stop. He had barricaded the road several times. For four or five years, there had been a, a uh, legal matter between the two. Daniel had sued Jonathan Lair to stop obstructing the road. So there was, there was a real... Uh, friction between these two, but nobody thought it would it would end in something like this. The police later that day, it took a few hours before they showed up at Jonathan Lara's house and arrested him uh, and another man who was just in town for a few days. But uh, when the police showed up at uh, Lara's house, they noticed that this man, Robert Snyder, who was staying with Lara, had severe burns on his arms and legs. Uh, that was kind of a telltale sign for them. Both were arrested and a couple of days later charged with murder. Wow. It, this story really does kind of have all these interesting bits to it. You, you mentioned how, uh, how popular this couple was in that, in that community. They'd really done a lot there, hadn't they? Like this was quite the resort that they had built with their money. Yeah, they'd done so many things. And I'd read a couple stories before I went down to Dominica uh, last week about how they were kind of revered in the neighbor, in the uh, community. And I, you always kind of treat that skeptically, but I could not find anybody who did not just in, in Soufriere, the little town where they lived, who did not just love and adore people. They did things quietly, like they financed small business that they took no credit for. They um, supported the local Carabana festival. And then they did big things after hurricane Maria in 2017, they, Danielle especially decided that he wanted to make this community more resilient because the hurricane had basically shut down Soufriere and much of Dominica for about a year. The power was out for a year. Uh, there was no way of evacuating the community. So one of the things he did immediately was build a jetty, um, a big dock system in, in the local community. So the, the idea being that they could evacuate. He rebuilt the school, the local primary school, for uh, well over a million dollars. Um, his Dominique uh, focused on on creating the hum local humane society. There really wasn't a project in this community that was completed over the last 20 years that didn't have their fingerprints in it. They were they were really 
supported everything. And then there was this resort, which was Danielle's vision for a long time. It is a self-sustaining resort, uh, entirely run off solar and wind power. All the water comes from rainwater. All the food uh, comes from probably within about five kilometers of, of you'd see the trucks around every morning uh, buying off of fishermen just down down the street from the resort. There's really he wanted to make a model resort that would show that you could have opulence without any kind of environmental compromise. And, right. and he succeeded. It opened just last year. So did, did you find that people really wanted to talk about them? People were open. Absolutely. They, this is a really small town and, and, and small towns generally are a little more, more open to uh, reporters coming in and talking, but especially when it came to those, these two, two people, they really wanted to describe all of their interactions um, with Daniel and Dominique. Coulibry Ridge, the, a PR agency that took over, that is managing affairs for Coulibry Ridge at the moment, kind of shut down comment from any employees. So that was that was difficult, but anybody who is a non-employee was very open to talking and everybody had some kind of experience. Um, I, I ran into several people who just mentioned that, you know, they, they had fallen on hard times with a, with a business or, or had fallen behind on payments. And lo and behold, Daniel and Dominique had just found them and, and helped support their business or help support their family. And without any taking any credit or anything, so they wow. they really they really helped sustain this place, which had had especially after Hurricane Maria had had it had it very rough for a number of years. Right. And what did the government have to say here? Because this is, as you said, a very small country, and it, it did take a long time for this resort to get built. I understand they spent something like twenty years getting this resort built. Yeah, it was a it was a real struggle to get this this resort done. Danielle, part of it was Danielle. He was, I think this comes from his 3D animation past. He is a micromanager. He has a vision and he wants to execute it precisely. Uh, talk to people who had worked for him in the past and, and he was very exacting in what he wanted. Um, the government, it seemed, never really supported this project in the way that they uh, support some other projects, um, really get the get behind them financially. Um, but after after the deaths, this is this is one of the things. So the, the community is sad. And now, a few weeks after the deaths, they're very angry because, and one of the reasons is they've just felt that the government has not really said a word about these deaths. Uh, these are two pillars of the community, yeah. of the nation even. And it was actually only the day we published this story um, this week that the prime minister um, actually came out and said anything about Daniel and Dominique's deaths. And it was only after there was kind of an uproar in the community and, and on the island that, that the prime minister would not mention these deaths at all. And, and murder is not unknown in Dominica, but murder of this type is. And for the prime minister of a country of just over 70,000 people, not to mention it in his remarks or on Twitter was a little strange. Yeah, it was. Although it makes just for more great reading in the piece that you wrote, Patrick. So thank you so much for joining us to tell us about it. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. As Patrick White, national correspondent for The Globe and Mail, check out his long-form piece that he has written on this murder case uh, international now involving these two high-profile prominent Canadians on this tiny Caribbean island. You can find it at globeandmail.com. 
This is Mornings with Simi. This time of year isn't just about shopping. It's not about giving presents or receiving presents. It's also more about, you know, spreading the love and helping out where you can. And that's why we want to talk about this next story. It's a local farm that could use your help. So let's find out more about that. Stuart Lilly is with us now, the founder of Refeed Farm. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Tell me, what is Refeed Farm? What do you do there? Yeah, we're a nutrient recovery facility or nutrient recovery farm um, where we're creating a circular food system. Um, what we do is we we ensure that nutrients from the agri-food industry, so primarily produce, produce uh, byproducts, um, are used to their highest value and not wasted. And that means that we're doing uh, recovery to feed people. We're recovering for livestock and we're creating soil microbiology and soil amendments to uh, grow more food. So we're just creating a complete circular system. Okay, that sounds good. Can you explain it to me kind of in real-world terms? What does it mean for <laughs> local people and feed, for food sure. banks and things yeah, like so that? We do industrial amounts of produce rescue. So that means that the produce that um, would not necessarily make it to food banks or would just be wasted, we're going to bring it to our facility, and we're going to go through it, and we're going to rescue it and get that back to food banks. So we're going to be that facilitator of the rescue of that product, you know, really the stuff that takes a lot of labor and, and uh, work to get through. And then we're going to get that back to, to food banks and charities so that, you know, they have the nutrition that they're looking for. And then what's left over, we're going to use as a livestock feed. So we're going to make sure that there's no contamination and we're going to get that back to local farmers so that we can help support their operations. And then we work with the farmers and, and uh, what's left over to, um, you know, really produce soil health products that replace right. synthetic fertilizers and, and uh, you know, products that consumers can buy. I love this. Okay, now I know you've had a huge impact to local food banks. How much food have you been able to provide? Uh, last, uh, last year we did over 500 tons. So, you know, that's, uh, that's a lot. over a million, a million pounds. Yeah, and, uh, you know, overall we did over 11 million pounds last year, so 5,000 tons through our facility. Um, and there's a lot more that can be done. It's just a matter of you know, ensuring that um, you know, we have the food industry partners that not only know about us, but um, you know, want to work with us to ensure that best practices are being followed for them. You know, we provide all the data, ensure that 100% utility is coming from this, this food that would otherwise be wasted. And we maximize the amount of food that goes back into the food system. Okay, I love this, but I understand that you are also got some struggles going right now. What's happening, Stuart? Yeah, so, you know, we when we built this, this was about that circular system where, you know, there's revenue contributions throughout the system. So, you know, the food industry partners, they contribute, food banks, they contribute, um, and then farmers contribute. But the, the real economic driver on this um, is the soil amendment part of the business, and it's very capital intensive. So when we started this, um, you know, in 2020, um, you know, kept on building it out. And we had an investor that uh, pulled out in January, actually, of, of this year that was funding the entire um, the entire scale-up of that. We got into economic troubles because we kept on trying to raise that capital for the last 10 months, really focusing on that manufacturing distribution part of the business and realized that in October, if we continued down that path, we were going to lose the heart and soul of this, which was you know, the, uh, the food rescue and the, the impact part of the business that, that what we do. So we had to, you know, put that on hold and, and really focus on surviving and, and getting through this, this challenging time. You know, we've got lease increases like everybody else is going through. Um, you know, ours is going up significantly as well. Operational cost increases. You know, it's just the reality of, of trying, to, trying to run a business, but yeah. also trying to run a, an impact business. Um, you know, and that really is a foundational piece of, 
the future of our food system. And yet, what you do is, you know, providing stuff to food banks when food banks kind of need it more than ever, don't they? Like, the, you may be able to provide a whole lot more to food banks, but I have a feeling that, that need is just growing and growing and growing. The need is insane, and it's only growing. Uh, one in five, you know, Canadians are food insecure. Um, you know, we've got a growing population. The, immigra- the immigration policy is only going to increase um, the, the need for, you know, ensuring that food is not being wasted and getting, getting to those that need it. You know, when we we built this, we are that piece that would make the food banking system more efficient, where they don't actually have to do everything, which is what they all currently do. They're all doing the, the driving around and rescuing it, sorting it, disposal, redistribution. Our model is have all the produce come through a central hub where we'll do all the heavy lifting. You just get the food that you need and redistribute it. And that, it, it'll ensure that all the produce that is available from these industrial sources, you know, this is the warehouses, distributors, graders, uh, the the major um, food industry chains, grocery chains like Loblaws and, and Walmart and Sobeys, Save on Foods. You know, it's those partners that um, through this system, we can ensure that um, none of this gets wasted. Okay. And what's been the response here? I know when you said, look, we need some help. A lot of people have responded. What's that been like? Yeah, we, we put together a GoFundMe campaign, and the um, the response has been amazing. Um, you know, we reached our, our initial goal, and, and we're now um, moving that up to, to really try and um, to maximize this, this opportunity to really put us on a strong footing moving forward, to, to really have this, um, this, this impact piece solidified for the long term. Um, we're also doing a, um, you know, starting a, a not, a not for profit so that we can you know, really have the opportunity to um, get those grants that are really for this type of work that we haven't been able to um, qualify for in the past. You know, it's really about setting this up for the future. So I uh, can't believe, you know, so far how, how many people have reached out and, and want to be a part of this. And, you know, it's really why I started this in the first place. So was to, to bring together the community. Okay, and where can people find out more then if they want to help out? And also, I, th- I can imagine lots of restaurants and perhaps some companies would also want to go, hey, I can I can help out with this. Yeah, um, we've got GoFundMe campaign. It's GoFund, uh, GoFund Refeed. Um, they can also support us through uh, reaching out, buying some of our soil amendment products as well. Um, we're definitely looking at the corporate community here, though, the, the larger um, food industry companies, to let them know, hey, we've got the solutions for you reach out that you can be a part of this as well and we can actually check this off as this is done we've we've fixed this problem let's move on to the next level um you know they can reach out to me directly and they can go to our website um we've got a a documentary short film that we did with uh, the greater vancouver food bank and rich and jay called rethinking food check that out Uh, we've been doing this a while we know what we're doing here and we know the pieces that need to be fixed but we need what uh, we we need all of, all of uh, the industry and and the community to to be a part of this. Now, I would love to help out here as well, Stuart, because I'm I'm big into gardening these days. This is a new hobby for me. <laughs> last awesome. couple of years, awesome. yeah. so soil amendments yeah. are now near and dear to my heart. So where can I get oh, your you products? Know what they are. That's <laughs> yeah, so we've got we've got worm castings, uh, which are the, the product that we produce is really um, high level. It's all about the microbiology that's in there. Uh, we've got vermicompost. Uh, we've got living soils. Um, you know, we've just got we've got the products that are actually going to create the life in your soil, which is going to uh, support your plants and and uh, and ensure that your nutrition and, and the the product that or the produce that you're growing is is going to be next level. Okay, and where can people find this stuff then? 
they can go onto our website or they can reach out to us directly. Um, we have it at uh, the farm gate. So um, we're out in Langley on 216th Street. Well, you know what? I'm going to be out that way on the weekend. I might just have to pay you a visit. So <laughs> thanks. Awesome. Thanks very much for this, Stuart. Thank you, Simi, for having me on. Anytime. That's Stuart Lilly. Check them out. It is Refeed Farm. It is all about sustainability and making sure you can look after yourselves. Listen, backyard gardeners, I know there are a lot of you out there because you email me and we chat about this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, let's see. If you want to buy a product that helps out your soils, this is a good place to check out. And you're also kind of helping the circular food system at the same time. And you know what? Businesses that are struggling, they could all use a little hand at this time of year, right?